This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is a crowd podcast. This podcast is sponsored by a man who lives on the edge. It's Ant Edgley. To be more like Ant, go to patreon.com, search for Joe Marler Show, and become an official sponsor today. You're listening to The Marler Show. It isn't on the radio. It's a podcast, fool. You listen anywhere you go. The Joe Marler Show. Welcome, one and all, to The Joe Marler Show. I am Joe Marler, and this is Tom Fordyce. Tommy, hello, how are you? Joe, do you know what? I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. What, what, what do you mean you knew it? Well, today's guest, without giving too much away too soon, is a futurist. Someone who will tell us about the future. And I just had this strange feeling, as I saw your face pop up on this Zoom call, that you were going to say those exact words, the words that you just said. I just had a premonition, a feeling. So you're telling me you you predicted that and it has nothing to do with the fact that we've both been sent a script of the opening line. So if, let's say you were 10 years old again, what thing that has happened to you since, i.e. in the future of 10-year-old Joe Marler, would you be most chuffed with and which thing that's happened would you be most aghast slash horrified? Don't understand the question. Right, you're 10 years old. Yeah. So you can't see in the future, but actually now you're 30 years old, aren't you? So you have seen 20 years of the future of that 10-year-old. Of the things that have happened in the 20 years since you were 10, which one would have given the 10-year-old the biggest kick and which would have given the 10-year-old the greatest fear? Okay, I'll try and answer it, even though I don't answer, understand the question, with 10-year-old me would be really chuffed with having touched a woman ah! <laughs> yes actually a hundred percent fucking hell 15 year old me would in fact you know <laughs> is this what this guest is going to do is he going to like oh he's going to make my brain hurt like what okay my question is the same to you i don't know how to say the question back because i don't understand it but let's pretend <laughs> I've said it back to you. Go on. The 10-year-old me would be astonished that um, almost any night of the year, if I chose to, I could sleep next to a fully grown woman. That would have been... <laughs> the 10-year-old would also be astonished that often I'd choose not to. Um... <laughs> 
It's such a cynical bastard, that 10-year-old Tom. <sighs> it's all, it was an awful child. Joe, should we get a guest on? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 yes, we are going to get a guest on, obviously, but do I want us to if he's going to fry my brain like you've somehow done with some of the questioning? I, I don't think I do, but we're going to anyway because you're forcing me to do this podcast on a uh, weekly basis and you've made me sign a contract with which means I can't pull out of it, even though I always um, try and advocate that there is always a choice, no matter what, you know, you just got to deal with the consequences and shit. Get a guest on. I predict that we're going to get a guest on anyway. <laughs> Our guest today is a futurist and his name is Mark Stevenson. Hello, Mark. Hello. I always forget to say hello at this point, Mark, because it feels like Joe's done the intro. So I'm going to say hello to you in a formal way. Okay. And I'm going to ask the first question, Joe, if that's all well, right. I, before you ask the first question, Tom, I also need to pick up on the fact that every time I introduce a guest and say hello, you purposely, and it's been getting worse, you purposely <laughs> leave each episode a little bit longer before you say hello to try and make it awkward. And what you haven't realised <laughs> is that I love awkwardness. I'm fine with it. It's cool. It's not awkward. However, our guests may not. Well, I've got to say that was quite awkward listening to you to have a little bit of a domestic <laughs> at the beginning head, at the heads of the show. So, sorry uh, for, you know, I mean, could you have done that? Awkward. Do you need a room or something? Do I, should I go away for a bit? You do work out your differences to come back when you're ready. I'm going to be professional about this and we're going to move on swiftly. <laughs> The question I was going to ask, Mark, because Joe and I have had a bit of chit-chat in advance of this episode, and the overall vibe I was getting as we were discussing the future was one of abject terror. So are, are we correct to feel terrified about the future, or are there any reasons for optimism? The answer is, if we carry on doing things the way the human race is doing things at the moment, then abject terror is the absolutely correct and rational response. However, in the world I work, which is trying to make the future better, there are all sorts of people trying to do things differently, which can give you a lot of optimism. So I would say that I'm a possibilist. I believe the future can be better, and I've dedicated my life to trying to make it so. So yes, uh, it's kind of uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, I think, is what we need. But what? hang on a minute, Tom. Was what? That was your, that was the opening question. Surely the opening question is, what on earth is a futurist? Or a futurologist, or is that something? That is a just... better opening question, Joe. That is a better yeah. opening question, to be fair. Oh, sorry. It's just going to happen at every question. Are you two going to have a little bit of an argument <laughs> with each other about how the podcast should run, and then talk to me, or has it go? Mark, can I open with a much better question? Um, what is a futurist? What What do you actually do? Do you look inside a crystal ball and go, "This is what's going to happen"? No, that you. That's a clairvoyant, and clairvoyants are all cunts, as we know. So. Let's <laughs> We're going to get on with Mark, Joe, aren't we? So that's a really good question. I don't actually like being called a futurist, um, but it is the nearest one word description for what I do. Futurism is kind of the, 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 the contemplation and I guess the study of the future or what might happen there. And there's all sorts of people who claim to do it. And there are no official qualifications for being a futurist. So you can do degrees in future studies, but you don't have to have done that to claim you're a futurist. In fact, you could argue that every single human being is a futurist because we're the only animal that thinks about the future in an abstract and systemic way. Most futurism, though, I have to say, is bollocks. So, and it's uh, and it's just so. And the reason it's bollocks is because generally, what futurists and this is, and there are some notable exceptions. People who call themselves futurists have several things wrong with them. I think first is they're often what I would call techno utopian optimists. So they just assume, they're obsessed with technology and they just assume that whatever problem humanity's got, technology will solve it at some point in the future. Now, that's not to say there isn't a, you know, a lot to be said about the power of technology, but actually most of the problems we face are the ones we've always faced, which is about how do we govern each other, what are our ethics, what are our morals, you know, how do our religions interact with society, how do we you know, deal with inequality, all those things. And those are actually you know, moral, ethical and governance issues that might be assisted by technology, but actually to deal with those, you've got to have a real historical understanding of how society got to the place and the mess it's in now. And again, most futurists don't really have any interest in history. So you can predict, say, the f what they call the first order effects of a new technology or, or idea hitting society. So for instance, when, when an internet arrives, you don't have to be a genius to say that email is probably going to be, be a big thing because now computers are connected and people can send messages. My brand of futurism, if I have one, is like saying to my clients, what are the questions we're being asked and how are you going to answer those well in the service of making our world more sustainable, equitable, humane or just. That is pretty um, complex 
and quite substantial of an answer. And at no point did you mention a hoverboard. So where are the hoverboards that were predicted in Back to the Future? Well, as I said, you know, we tend to predict things that we'd like to see rather than things that are real. So there's lots of things that have happened that we didn't predict, and there's lots of things that uh, we did predict that haven't happened. So what, what are some of the big ones that we have predicted that have happened? Well, again, the first order effects of stuff. So if you go back and look at things like growth of the internet, growth of solar panels, growth of wind powers, stuff in the energy markets, you can predict that stuff quite easily because, you know, you can kind of work out, well, the cost curve is doing this, there's this much demand for it at some point, you know. And so, for instance, like wind power yes, last year doubled the amount of installed capacity in the in the world. Um, the flu pandemic, um, I predicted that along with a whole bunch of other people that would happen at some point in the next five to ten years. Uh, that thing, how that how did you know that? Flu pandemics are not a surprise. They happen all the time. You know, go and look at history for that. And, um, you know, you've got uh, also the human race is in a war with nature. So we've got a biodiversity crisis. And when you start attacking nature and destroying habitats, you get more crossover from one animal to another much more easily. So you're, you're likely to accelerate that stuff. And in fact, there's another 40 zoonotic pandemics potentially waiting to cross over if we don't sort our act out. So you can predict that kind of stuff. 40? Yeah, 40 at least. Jesus Christ. Mark, Sorry, am I not cheering you up, like, Joe? <laughs> well, it's, not, it's just... Yeah, okay. I'll go back to Tom's question at the start. Is is the future just full of abject fear and horror? And you've just gone, yeah, there's another 40 pandemics on the way. Well, not, just, they're not, not necessarily on the way, but they have the potential oh. to cross over, certainly. If we keep ruining the world. And there will be another flu yeah, pandemic because flu viruses evolve and they change and whatever. And that's the way, way of things. You know, that's how viruses work. But certainly the more you encroach upon and destroy the natural habitat, then the more you're going to have these crossover events. Certainly. I've got a feeling, Joe, that there'll be points in this podcast where we fall silent, not because we're not fascinated by what Mark's <laughs> saying, because we're gripped by existential terror and are considering moving to a distant part of the globe to live with a compostable toilet and eating sustainable products. Well, my silence will be driven by trying to break down what he's said and trying to understand it more because his speed of talk is fantastic and also you're so gripping to listen to but i worry that that's mainly because i don't really understand a single fucking thing oh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> i try and bring it back to being thingy um mark talk to me my brother-in-law is into cryptocurrency Yes. And he's been mentioning it to me for the last year or so. And mm-hmm. I was like, mate, you're deluded. You might as it's just the same as having monopoly money. I've got like I've got two sets of monopoly at home. You might as well have that. And he's looking at me, you're such an idiot. You are such an idiot. You don't know what you just do some research into it. Have a look at it. It's it's where the world's going. In like ten, fifteen years, there's gonna be no actual What's the word he says? Fiat. 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 Fiat Fiat currency. It'll all be like digitalized and what's the other Mm -hmm. fancy? Decentralized and all this Mm -hmm. lot. I want you to help me go back to him and go, you're wrong. (laughs) Um, Monopoly money is the same. Or are you going to say he's right? Well, it actually depends. We don't know yet. So cryptocurrency is an interesting idea. When he's talking about fiat currencies, he's meaning currencies aren't actually backed up by anything. There's nothing behind that piece of paper, if you have a five-pound note that says it's worth five pounds. The thing that's actually behind it is the will of the government and its armed forces to say, you have to accept this. Now, that's what cryptocurrencies don't have. They don't have governments behind them. Now, there are people thinking about doing cryptocurrency versions of national currencies, which is interesting. So the problem cryptocurrencies have at the moment is that nobody's spending them. If Amazon turned around tomorrow and said, we're going to start accepting Bitcoin, for instance, that would change things. However, if Amazon did that, the Federal Reserve would probably go, no, you're not, and stop them from doing it. So at the moment, nobody knows. So it would take a, a confluence of the technology and governments and civil society to kind of work out how that might work. Now, there are lots of technical advantages to cryptocurrencies that could be really helpful for nation states and making things easier. For instance, uh, in many ways, it's loads cheaper to transfer money using cryptocurrencies. However, at the moment, cryptocurrencies also have a massive environmental footprint, which is not cheap. So um, the jury is out. Uh, I am going with you mostly, Joe, at the moment, because I think the problems with cryptocurrencies outweigh the benefits so far. No way. That might not change. 
just yeah. give me a little bit of explanation on how it affects the world more with a carbon footprint. Why? Well, because most cryptocurrencies, um, to create uh, a new Bitcoin, you have to do this thing called Bitcoin mining, which is basically solving some very, very complex um, mathematical problems. And for the crypto geeks out there, I'm necessarily simplifying this. So please don't email me telling me that I did it too simply and go back to being single. Okay. We will put Mark's email on the end of this podcast so you can forward <laughs> any emails towards him. So cryptocurrencies uh, are created um, by single mining. Mining is actually solving these incredibly complex mathematical problems and that takes up huge amounts of energy. And if the computers you're using to do that are being powered on fossil fuels, then you've got a massive environmental footprint. And the current estimate is the current environmental footprint of Bitcoin alone is uh, the same environmental footprint in terms of carbon emissions as Denmark. What? So it's bad. It's bad. Yeah, but it's he bad. He nearly convinced me that it was good. Well, it's, it's like all these things. It's neither good nor bad. So my specialism really is not, I mean, they call it futurism, but it's really systems thinking and interconnectedness and interdependence and tolerance and working out how these things fit together and not about the answers, but how do you ask the question that brings people together? So if I always say that people divided by politics are soon brought together around a project, you know, give them something to build together. And then they will use these technologies and ways of thinking to create something that they all want. Um, so, you know, where do we put the health center? Should we build a bridge? You don't get left wing bridges and right wing bridges. I am resolutely, I mean, obviously there are some things that you can pretty much say are good and or bad. But generally, there's grey areas, and grey areas is where I work, which is um, which is problematic because most people don't like that. They've, they they'd much rather have a simple answer, which is my brother's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> now, food is something that Joe and I talk about a lot, Mark, because Joe has, on occasion during the recording of this podcast, reached into an unmarked brown paper bag and started eating meat. Um, <laughs> I feel slightly smug because I don't eat meat, but having seen seaspiracy recently i feel slightly less smug so what's go- what do we think is going to happen with food and i know this you could probably do about 18 podcasts just on this alone oh, but yes. first of all if joe and i are still doing this podcast in 10 years time which i find um unlikely <laughs> um we will be able to sit down and share a meal which we both enjoy which is ethically suitable for both of us which is environmentally friendly and yet still taste delightful uh well possibly uh, i think 10 years is quite a short time frame for that but you know again the food system is insanely insanely complicated meat for instance okay so meat is an incredibly inefficient way of getting protein if you if you actually add it up and look at the amount of energy that came from the sun that eventually went into the crops that was eventually fed to the cow that you eventually ate and the amount of energy you actually got out of it it comes out at about three percent and and if you farm cattle in a bad way this kind of industrial farm cattle it's incredibly bad for the environment if you farm cattle in a regenerative way and use the cattle as, as part of the ecosystem which is in harmony with the land actually it can draw down more carbon and methane than it puts out there again there's these very simple you know uh, solutions which are like oh everybody should go vegan but if you go vegan you can get these horribly you know i'm not saying you shouldn't go vegan by the way because i think it's a perfectly reasonable way of you know if you have a, a, a moral decision to do it or a health decision to do it i'm not i'm not demonizing vegans but the, you know if you had an entirely vegan food system and you removed all the animals that could be detrimental as well you could have all these monocrops you can have these horrible vegan cheeses actually look at the environmental footprint of them what's in them they're horrible and chemically and nasty and all sorts of things so there's all it's very 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 complicated and um, there are lots there's lots of great innovation though going on in food at the moment particularly in regenerative farming and grazing and looking at how we can work with nature rather than against it but no i don't know whether you'll go to do that in 10 years but you know you probably can now if you search out the right place i like that in mark's answer at the start of it he managed to attack meat eaters by saying it's not a very efficient way of eating a bit of meat and at the same time bagged vegans so my next question <laughs> would be well mark what do, what are you then do you eat meat do you, are you a vegan or do you just eat air uh, no i'm i'm mostly vegetarian but, but that's because my wife is vegetarian so in our house you know i tend to prefer vegetarian food because i'm a bit of a cook foodie and i like the, the i like to cook quite a lot of middle east and stuff i will eat meat because i um, not like you joe but i train quite a lot so you know sometimes you just need that hit of protein um, i generally try to make sure it's as ethically sourced as possible and i'm lucky that because of what i do i'm probably more informed about where to get that from than most people so no i would not ever judge anybody for saying they don't want to eat meat because i think it's a perfectly reasonable ethical and moral and health choice as well but um, i also do believe that we know we're kind of apex predators and carnivores and we have these teeth for a reason and if you don't have, if you're not squeamish about it then i don't have a problem with you eating meat but i want it to be meat that's not destroying the planet and unfortunately the current meat industry is very problematic in that respect 
We're having one of so our can, pauses, Joe, for so abject I, terror. So can I eat meat or not? Well, it depends what meat you're going to eat. Chicken? So it, uh, one of the things, you're, you're, what you're getting on there, of course, is it's very hard as a consumer, sorry, I hate the word consumer, as an average citizen. Again, I'm not suggesting you're average, Joe, of course, you're an incredible <laughs> human being. But uh, it, it's for, for each of us that are trying to purchase our foodstuffs from the, the sources that we're given, it's very hard to know. You know, you might have some beef that's been, say, sustainably farmed um, in New Zealand, but it's flown all the way from New Zealand. So one of the things that we need to introduce um, is is better labelling for this stuff, and then legislation that says, well, you know, if the car, if the you know the carbon miles on this are this much, then you know, don't buy it. In fact, one of the industries I'm working with at the moment is the music industry, and there's a lot of discussion there and about festivals and stuff. You know, you've got your burgers at your festival. Well, if you got them from the farm next door, that's probably a lot more sensible than getting them from some wholesaler, you know, miles away. And same with beer. We just started starting up a sustainable beer um, standard as well. So there's a, got a, there's a lot of work to be done. I think it's really hard for us as individuals who are trying to buy our stuff to work out what to do. And, and therefore, asking these questions is really important. The, the layman's description of you, having listened to you for the last 20 minutes, is you're incredibly intelligent um hippie basically <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's trying to change the world at one sector at a time by the sounds of it and i thought a futurist which you don't like being called or a futurologist which i'm not sure whether you like being called a futurologist or not i thought you were going to come on here and tell me that um robots are going to do everything that we do or everything that we don't want to do in the next 20 years surely th at some point that's going to happen no Right, okay, so we're jumping around a lot, aren't we, here? Let's go. Whoa, okay. That's what we do. Art artificial intelligence robots, what do you want to know? Okay, so there's a lot of bullshit talked about artificial intelligence robots, but there is some amazing stuff happening there. And, and part of this comes from, our, from science fiction. So when you think about artificial intelligence and robots, we're kind of all informed by the science fiction tropes of machines coming back from the future to kill us and all that kind of stuff, and you know, sentient robots who will make moral decisions about this, that, and the other. Um, and there's a very good reason for that, because we want science fiction to be entertaining. Nobody wants to watch, you know, Terminator 6 Gardening Day, where the robots <laughs> come back from the future to mow your lawn. I mean, that's you not... Say that, wants that. You say that, but that that sounds like a very niche market that could become very yeah. popular. So I think we need uh, to... Can we I keep think that surely, quiet the definition and, yeah. of, surely the definition of a niche market is it's not popular, but we can argue about that later. Yeah, but it's a popular niche, so um, it's more than okay. it's more than five people, but less than ten. Right. Again, doesn't sound like a massive movie-going market. Hey, I'm I'm the niche expert here. You're the future expert. Okay. Ooh. Right. Well, I'm good. We'll talk about your particular niche later. <laughs> so, in in science fiction, there's this is this trope of what they call the artificial general intelligence, which is essentially a machine that can think and feel and make moral decisions like we do. Basically, the conscious machine uh, that doesn't exist at the moment. Uh, machines do incredible things like to do with natural language processing and process lots of stuff, but they don't have an opinion. Like they don't have an opinion on whether you know Joe is a good. Uh, rugby player or not, they don't have an opinion on Bitcoin. They don't make decisions about what to eat at night. They don't fall in love because they're not conscious machines. And, and the reason we haven't built a conscious machine is because we don't know what consciousness is. Like they've been arguing about that ever since they've been in philosophy. So some of the most interesting work about what consciousness might be is happening in robotics and AI, but we're so far off even asking the right questions. So we're not going to build a conscious machine or, or certainly not in our lifetimes, I don't think. That's my position. I'd be, you know, I could be proved wrong. And um, But what you do have is you have this incredible ability to machines do this incredible pattern finding, number crunching or whatever. So in the future, it's more like you would pair a human being's conscious abilities, the things that you get from being human, the creativity, the inventiveness, the ability to think new things, ask new questions. And then you go and pair that with the incredible number crunching, pattern finding abilities of AI. But you have to ask, you have to ask the right questions. So that's kind of how I see the future going. So it, it won't be, you won't be replaced by an AI. You might be replaced by somebody who knows how to use an AI. So Mark, I can see on the wall behind you as we're chatting on this, uh, it's not Zoom, but a version of Zoom. I can see your two guitars. Yes. I can see a nice acoustic with a cutaway neck, oh. and I can see a nice, is that a, it's what's a, your alleged? It's a, an American Telecaster. I read a book recently, which is called The Song Machine, and it's all about how the music industry has changed and how, probably starting with that group of Swedish producers who do who did Britney yes. and the Backstreet Boys, Max yes. Martin, all those, that lot, mm. how computers and algorithms are being used to make music. And there was some terrifying stuff in there, a lot of interesting stuff. But I found myself wondering, and 
Yeah, as a musician and a futurist slash a mark, you might be able to help us with this. Will a computer or will artificial intelligence be able to work out what we find aesthetically pleasing in music and replicate it? So I don't know if that it actually counts as being creative or whether it can work out the numbers behind what we think of as creativity. Well, it can certainly, you know, say, well, this, you know, given the data I've had in, you know, this is going to be more pleasing to more people than others. But, you know, I, you know, I listen to prog rock, for instance. I'm in a prog rock band. I mean, that's willfully complicated music written by, you know, mostly white guys who really don't want to dance and are largely single and bald. <laughs> you know, you're not, there's, there's probably isn't an algorithm for what we do because we, we're desperately trying to make it willfully, you know, difficult. Um, so, yeah, it can tell you that this might be, people might like this, but that's not creativity. You know, we knew that already. Okay, we know how to do that. Those guys knew how to do it. Again, it makes it easier, but you're still not going to get that. The machine's not going to turn around to you and say, this lyric post-COVID, because of the sentiment expressed about what the world's been through, is going to really land with people and make them cry. That's just not going to happen. So again, it's a, it's a mixture of the two, I think. There was a, a little project that was done. You might have seen this. It came out a couple of months ago where they tried to get artificial intelligence or they fed into, I'm out of my depth already here, they fed into a computer a lot of Nirvana and a lot of Nirvana lyrics and it came up with a new Nirvana song. Do you see this? No, no, I didn't. Was so it, it sort of, it wasn't great, but it, it felt like a bad, not a bad, it felt like a, it was a pastiche, basically. Yeah, well, that's fine. If you want to see a bad pastiche Nirvana, just go to the Water Rats Theatre, you know. A pastiche? What the fuck is a pastiche? Is that like a pasty Corn and a quiche? <laughs> Yeah, Tom's that, the writer. I'll let Tom explain what pastiche. Yeah, it is. You're right, Joe. Throw around, mate. I'm struggling enough. Is it is keeping up with the AI chat and the future and the fact there's no hoverboards and stuff, and then you throw in pastiche and you think I'm just going to let that go. Pastiche. It's like a fax a facsimile. So like, um... <laughs> Joe, just between you and me, Joe, I'm looking at our faces, and we are astonished. But we're also struggling with all this stuff Mark is saying. Let's have a quick breather, Joe. We'll go to some ads. We'll come back shortly, yeah? Yeah, I knew my brain would hurt. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. Joe, before we go any further, we should, of course, thank the patrons. These are our official sponsors, and I shall begin, Joe, with Marcus, Aha, Partridge, Parent and Child Parking, it's David Darking. On a hill start, you might stall, it's Tristan Hall. Venus and Serena's brother, Matt Williams. It's not Windy Miller, it's Ian Miller. Big tree beard, James Oakes. On Market Street, he goes busking. It's Matthew Ruskin. And finally, it's Alex Myatt. Just Alex Myatt. To be more like Marcus, David, Tristan, Matt, Ian, James, Matthew and Alex, go to patreon.com, search for Joe Marler Show and become an official sponsor today. Right, my brain has recovered just about. Those ad breaks rescued me just in time. Mark, I've got a, fr a friend who's quite um, outspoken at times 
and he came out with one comment that was, they've got the cure for loads of diseases, mate. And I went, what do you mean? He said, well, they've got the cure for it, they're just not releasing it. I said, why wouldn't they release... Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they release the cures for stuff that kills people? He was like, because they need people to die in order for the world to survive. Because if the world is overpopulated, then the world will just like blow up in inside itself. Okay, so this is an incredibly complex area because you're no 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 don't start off your answer with the complex word for me well okay this is a very simple area and i'll attempt to explain it in a very complex way uh so, so you've got these intertwined things of population and longevity essentially so longevity is how long people live Population is how many people are. And then you have to think about the fertility rate as well, which is how many uh, children are born per woman. Back in the 19th century, a very famous essay was written and rewritten by a man called Dr. Thomas Malthus. About 33 times he wrote this. If we carry on living too long or growing in population, then at some point the population is going to outstrip the ability of our crops and our planet to sustain us, and then we'll have a collapse and it'll all be terrible and horrible and whatever. So therefore, we must necessarily at some point restrict the number of people on the planet. Now, that's obviously true except that every time the population has grown, we've managed to find some way to keep track of that in terms of producing more food. What nobody talks about is the birth rate is now dropping and has been dropping quite consistently. So around the, if you took the world as a whole, the current birth rate is about 2.4, I think. And 2.1 is where we hit stability. Okay? If, if every woman has 2.1 children on average, then the world stays at the same population. And according to the UN's median variant estimate, which is statisticians speak for best guess, that happens sometime in the back half of the century, and depending on which nuance you look at it, you know, it happens at 2075 or 2090 or whatever. And that gives us about 11 billion people. Okay? Now, if we carry on running the world as we do now, that's a disaster. However, 11 billion people is entirely sustainable on this planet if we shift to more regenerative and more sustainable ways of doing things. Also, but by the time we've got to the stage where we are living, if we are going to get to live to 100, 150 or whatever, then that might also be the stage that we're thinking of colonising the moon and stuff. The idea that people are suppressing uh, cures for things is so fucking ridiculous as to make me incandescent with rage. Okay, and it's ridiculous on two on two very obvious reasons, which is one, it could require a conspiracy of the sort that would be impossible to cover up, and B, the amount of money people would be able to make from. If you imagine, if you had a cure for cancer, you know, and we live in a in a capitalist world, there's no way any government or can suppress that kind of stuff. Okay, because the amount of value it would bring to the economy. It's a, it, what is it's a really fanciful and easy way of thinking about the stuff, which allows people to not engage themselves personally and properly with things. Like, oh, it's no point because it's all too cynical and those people over there are controlling everything so therefore I don't have to get involved with thinking seriously about what I'm going to do about my health or the health of the people around me or my community. It's a total get out of cause, uh, get out of jail free card. It's basically cynicism and cynicism is just apathy dressed up as wisdom. You know, just fucking stay in bed because all you're doing is bitching about things, not doing anything to change it other than come up with these stupid, ridiculous conspiracy theories which don't get help us at all. So please just fuck off. So, uh, <laughs> what I've taken, I've taken, I've taken two things. Oh, fuck. I've taken two things from that. Maybe three. We'll start with two. Uh, the first one is, Mark, I would like to invite you um, for a pint of uh, any beverage you want. I'm buying um, with my friend who shan't be named, Sean, um, to have a discussion around things, uh, which would just be wonderful to watch. And secondly, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're really quite aggressive at times, which I really, that really got me i liked it it was good to see such passion from you and then thirdly um and more seriously is how uneducated i am and i suspect a lot of people listening to this is well i'm bagging our listeners tom brilliant we're gonna fall we're gonna fall in listening numbers immediately saying that they're uneducated in the sense of because I just didn't think this sort of stuff was really that big a deal and the way you've started speaking about it all is immediately made me go hang on it is you've just predicted potentially that in 2075 or when we reach 11 billion we cannot continue and it's like at the way we live so hang on how do i start making change but what do you say to the people that say well i don't need to recycle because 
like there's only one of us so i can't really make a difference to the world by changing my behaviors or habits like that i can understand why people say that i also don't have much time for it because what you're doing is you're a leader everybody's a leader what you do ripples out across space and time and it affects other people and if you don't do something you give permission for other people to do stuff so people say oh there's no point in me recycling because those bastards across the road don't do it or you know china is still building a coal you know well then they might be sitting across the road going well no point in doing it because those those bastards over there aren't doing it so you know um gandhi said this great thing he said what you do will be insignificant but it's really important that you do it i mean think about it you go back to how long it was 20 years ago it was perfectly acceptable to drink and drive maybe it was 30 years ago you know would you have said oh i'm not I, i'm not going to stop drinking and driving because that guy over there hasn't stopped drinking and driving that's not sensible. You know, are, are you the center of your own moral universe? Are you going to take responsibility for yourself and then act as a being to other people? Or are you going to totally abdicate your moral responsibilities because you can't fucking be asked? And what kind of human does that make you? And what example does that give to your children? And then by extension, what example does that give to everybody else? You know, the only thing you really have control over is yourself. And if you believe in a particular world, as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. And if that's all you do, that's still a great thing and you should be happy with yourself. If you're going to sit and bitch about everybody else not doing stuff and therefore you won't do it, you are now part of the problem that's contributing to the world you've just complained about. So you can fuck off. As I'm listening to this, Joe, I'm f I'm feeling equal parts inspired and deeply ashamed. Like I, I, Less so now, but my wife's a vegetarian um, and her choice of being a vegetarian is mainly... Morally, she loves animals um, and she doesn't like the cruel way in which they're killed in order to eat them. So, you know, it's fair enough. But I've often had arguments with her like, oh, it's only a bit of meat or oh, just come on, let's just eat and all this. Sort of, I don't really like that. And the same with the recycling. She's like, that's you need to wash that before you put it in. And then I'm on that stupid um, group of people. I think you called us twats or something. You definitely <laughs> called us something. The twat group, yeah. The twat group who uh, you've got no fucking time of uh, for and can fuck off. Um, of like, well, me recycling and washing, it's only going to go to the junkyard and it's going to be mixed in with stuff that hasn't been washed. So I'm not going to bother doing it. And it's made me go, fuck it, hang on a minute. Daisy's been right the whole time. It's just it's she hasn't said it aggressively enough or passionately enough the way you have, Mark, to make me sit up and listen and go, shit, I need to start changing my ways here. Both arguments are right because we need systemic change. Okay. You know, why do we have to get so much bloody packaging that we have to recycle? You know, why is that not put back onto the, the, the producers of this stuff? And how can we create a recycle of packaging that did biodegrades, biodegrades, you know, release. So there's all that kind of stuff going on. So yes, we should absolutely pressure everybody else. But it's very hard, I think, to say, well, it's not my problem when you've done, when there is something you can do. And if you can do that one thing, then do it. Okay. Why wouldn't you do it? Um, it's a bit like, you know, people who can't be bothered to switch their electricity supply to a renewable tariff, even though renewable tariffs are now as cheap, if not cheaper than uh, the fossil fuel ones. It's like, it's not that difficult to do. And you can do it. Makes makes note in phone to immediately change tariff to renewables as soon as podcast recording is complete. Make note in my phone, Google what renewable renewable <laughs> renewable tariff energy is. This is incredible chat, Mark, and I love it. But there is a but. For a lot of people out there that are like myself, that are very good at this sort of thing. Are there, is there like something I can watch? Is there like a film I can watch that gives the best prediction of what the future is going to be like? Or is it all bullshit? We don't know. The, see, the you're telling, you, so you, you just said no. And you're telling me that Blade Runner is not going to happen. Blade Runner is not going to happen. But um, the, 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 the thing I always say to people is, you know, the answer to all our collective futures is the choices we all make individually. And, and, and you know, you just you have to decide, do I believe in a future that's more sustainable, actual, humane or just? And I might get it wrong on the way there and I might have some, some false steps. And I might go a few steps back or I'll go a few steps forward. Or do I just give up and wait for somebody else to solve those problems? You, I just think you've got to do what you can where you are. So, you know, the world of rugby, I don't know what's happening in terms of um, sustainability in rugby. One of the biggest carbon footprints of any sports club is the under, hitch, under, under pitch heating. It's absolutely enormous. But did you know, did you know that you can mow your pitch and turn the grass into fuel to run the club? Right, Joe, you're, as soon as we're done here, you're phoning Quinns. Hang on a minute. What do you mean you can mow it and turn it into fuel? Okay, so my friends uh, who uh, run a company called Benham and they're working with a number of Premier League football 
clubs at the moment. I can't mention which ones because they're under sort of these agreements that say they can't. They're taking all of their grass and they're taking all the grass from the training grounds. Uh, and at the moment, you have to pay to have that taken away. Okay. You can now put that into something called an anaerobic digester. And I mean, it's been going around for ages. But then you can take off that um, a particular gas, methane, and they found a way to make that methane into a liquid fuel you can use to power your club or power the, the vehicles of the club or whatever. So rather than having to pay to have it taken away, you can now turn it into um, a, a fuel source. It's fantastic. I mean, it's really, really making me think a lot about my behaviours and what I'm doing in the way I think about things and approach things and I'm finding it hard to actually concentrate on trying to get a podcast completed whilst also <laughs> thinking totally about it. <laughs> also thinking about oh my god there's so many changes that I can make and uh, how can how how do I start doing that I don't like being called a futurist you know but I come off a reluctant futurist but my job is go look the future is asking you a big question whether you like it or not about you know your children's future and where and who we are as a species and you have some capability to do something about it. So are you going to use that or are you going to carry on what we've always done? So you know just because we're late to the game doesn't mean we shouldn't be going going at it. You know I'm sure Joe you've scored some late minute last minute uh, tries and whatever that have changed everything. Wow you really don't know your rugby. Um, I, <laughs> I played a game against Leicester Tigers and. There was a rolling mall, which is where a load of big blokes run into another load of big blokes, and they try and push each other. And we're go we're going forward, which is great, and I'm getting really excited. I get on the ball at the back, and I think, oh my god, I'm going to score a try. This is going to be my first try that I've scored in, god knows how many years. Even though I tell my seven year old that I score all the time because that's the only <laughs> thing he asks. Did you score? Yeah, like scored ten today, Jasper. He's like, cool, cool. Um. Anyway, we're going forward and uh, there's a five metre line just before the try line, which funnily enough is five metres before the try line. Um, and I'm only looking down and we're going fast, going forward really fast. And I see this line and I thought, brilliant, I've scored. And I pop <laughs> and I lie and I lie down over the ball and think I pause there for a moment like this is brilliant. I've scored. I've actually scored a try. I, I don't feel I'm not going to feel guilty going back to Jasper and lying to him where I can actually show him scoring a try. Um, and then someone started contesting the ball and I quickly realised it was the wrong line. It was five metres short of the try line. Um, so, yeah, that's how little you know of rugby, thinking that I do score wonderful tries, which I don't, I'm afraid to admit, Mark. At least you tried. It, which At is least important. I tried. <laughs> At least you, I was going to say try and I thought I can't say try. I can't really? because, yeah. It's the origins of the of the word. Actually, isn't it? Because in, in the old, old days in rugby, a try was, the, the points were scored by kicking the ball between the posts. So by scoring a try, you got to have a try at the posts. I think that's the origins of it. Yeah. What, you got no points for scoring a try? I think it was merely to kick at the post. I could be wrong, but I've got no a feeling that's where way. the try comes from. Fucking hell, I don't even know my sport. Like That just shows how much you can <laughs> wing it. It's just absolutely crazy. All right, somebody say pastiche quickly. <laughs> oh, God, I, I fancy a pastiche right now, to be fair. <laughs> nice pastiche, quiche combo. Just quickly before Tom, Tom interjects with his next question, you briefly said about it's too late for climate change. Well, it's on a knife edge. I mean, it's basically thermodynamics, right? So there's too much heat in the system. And a lot of that heat's gone into the ocean. So if you stopped emitting tomorrow, you'd still have the oceans being too hot and they're still going to be melting the ice. But there's a lot we can do. And actually, one of the things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to draw down the carbon we've already put into the atmosphere. We're going to have to draw down, depending on which scientific uh, angle you go at this at, we're going to have to draw down between 800 and 2,000 gigatons of carbon that's already in the atmosphere by the end Ooh, of the century. That doesn't sound like a small number. No, and, and the technology and the ways of doing it, there isn't nearly enough capacity at the moment to do that. Um, the industry we're going to have to build is going to be two to three times bigger than the current oil and gas industry. And that's one of the things I'm involved really? in at the moment is, is, trying to, is trying to build that industry. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. We've built industries that quickly before. Um, it's just a matter of getting the right financial incentives involved, but, you know, and getting getting the narrative right and getting people. I mean, I've been talking about this stuff for 20 years. 20 years ago, nobody wanted to talk about it, particularly environmentalists. Environmentalists said we can't talk about drawing carbon back from the atmosphere because that will give the polluters a get-out-of-jail-free card, to which the argument is, that's nice, but the science says we've got to draw it back, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, so that, but that's going to, that's changing now. We've all, we've all worked out that we've got to do it, but we've got to build it really, really quickly. If we can do that, 
we're in good shape, you know, and I've, I've bent quite a lot of my life, you know, to, to, to making that happen and writing about it. So there are all sorts of things we can do. When you, when you say draw back, I go like, um, oh God, I'm comparing it to smoking. How am I, how do I get out of trouble here? Cause he's going to judge me for smoking and putting smoke in the earth. And then any rugby <laughs> listeners are going to judge me for smoking. Cause you're meant to be a professional athlete. Oh, you idiot. Okay. What, it, what I would imagine it to be like if, if you smoked, when you say mm. drawback, I'm like, right, I just draw it back in. How are you drawing back in all that gigatons of carbon in, and where are you drawing it back to? What what are you trying to do there? Well, that happens already, right? So the, the the Earth, its natural systems, draw in lots of carbon that's emitted. Okay, for instance, if you look at a tree, you know most of the material in that tree is carbon taken from the atmosphere. That's what photosynthesis is. It takes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turns it into the tree. So that process happens naturally all the time. Okay? The problem is that we've unbalanced it in that we used to, there's a thing called the carbon cycle where the carbon gets emitted by various things and it gets drawn back in and it's nice and it's all balanced and the temp- and the and the planet stays at you know roughly the same temperature depending on how far it is away from the sun we've unbalanced that by sticking in an extra 30 gigatons or whatever of carbon every year which means that, that it's not being drawn back as at the same rate so suddenly you get this carbon building up in the atmosphere so we've got to find ways to accelerate to br- draw that down there's various ways of doing that you can do it temporarily so one way to do it is you plant more trees they will take the carbon out, turn it into a tree. Then you can do other things like create stuff called biochar, which is where you take agricultural waste and you do this thing called pyrolization, which is building in a low oxygen environment. And that creates a very stable form of carbon that you can actually put into soils and increases their fertility. And then you can do stuff that's real permanent storage, which is like taking the carbon out of the atmosphere and mineralizing it. And every uh, analysis by the IPCC says that we have to have carbon drawdown technology and technology to capture carbon from things like the power plants at source. Otherwise, there's just no way we can do it. And I mean, Microsoft has just announced that it's going to draw down not only what it puts up every year, but everything it's ever emitted. There's stuff to be done. There's lots of, I mean, it's an exciting time to be alive because we've got to save the planet. You know, it's literally our own action movie. Let's get involved. What about, can't, what about aliens? What about them? <laughs> Seems like I've segued quite a lot there, but I, what I mean is, um, so if we're trying really hard to save this planet, yeah. Yeah. What if there's aliens out there mm-hmm. that already know how to do it and we should just try and really hard to go and meet them to then lend us a hand here? Well, it's an, in- it's an interesting strategy. Um, I think I've got a call with the cabinet office in a couple of weeks. I'll put it to him and say, you know, all that stuff you're trying to do with COP26. Let's chat to this guy, Joe. <laughs> He's got this idea that what we should do is just go out like, you know, interstellar-like, you know, on a Christopher Nolan movie. It's been an absolute fortune traveling interstellar distances to you know uh which actually will take us twenty thousand years to get there and back to solve a problem that we need to solve in the next 10 or 20 years what do you think i'm getting a strong feeling from you mark that you're not keen <laughs> on my idea I, i'm all for maverick ideas i love the creativity mm, um I'm, mm. I'm 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 thinking it's probably not going to fly with enough people but there's loads of video <laughs> Are you going to invite me down the pub with another one of your mates? You said, but they're already here. They're already here. They already know how to do it. There's loads of videos. Loads of videos. There's loads of videos over the sea where there's these floating things and they don't know. Oh, maybe the technology's already been invented, but they're just holding it back. I just, I just don't know. I've got one final question, Joe, before um, we wrap up what has been a mind-blowing episode of the joe Myler show that is mark what has been i know we are saying that it's not about predictions but i thought it was about predictions in advance so i've got to shoehorn all my prediction stuff in what is your favorite prediction from the past that turned out to be spectacularly incorrect so i think i would throw into the mix the fact that when trains or yeah the, the train came along there were there were scientists who believed that people would pass out um, if a train went faster, or go blind, I think, if a train went faster than 20 miles an hour. There's so many of them. I mean, some of my favourites are, um, I mean, from people who should have known better. So in 1903, Wilbur Wright said, man will not fly for 50 years. He was building a fucking aeroplane at the time. <laughs> like, he's literally, he walked out of a hangar where he was building an aeroplane. We all have bad word. days with projects, yeah, didn't yeah, he? Something had gone wrong that day. <laughs> 1927. Harry Warner, one of the Warner Brothers from Warner Brothers Studios at Warner Brothers Studios, says, who the hell wants to hear actors talk? 
you know, he's running a studio. So he really should know. I mean, my my only thought on that is he may have predicted the Fast and Furious franchise which is trying to save us <laughs> at the get-go. I don't know. Um, one of my friends, but back to back, I think my favourite is is also to do with railways. Um, and and I talked a lot about prejudice and how we tend to, you know, view things from our existing frame of reference. And, of course, the world is still incredibly sexist, but it, it, it was even worse in the past, I think. And the, one of the predictions about why trains would not succeed as a technology is because um, women's bodies are not designed to be accelerated to that speed. And if they are, their uteruses will fly out of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's a bold claim, isn't it? That it is a bold claim. <laughs> I mean, this may be why, you know, Southern Rail, who are my local rail station, don't go above 50. I don't know. Uh, maybe they're just worried about the cleanup bill. I'm just I don't know. But, you know, it's just. <laughs> my wife. It's ridiculous, isn't my it? Wife is... <laughs> my wife is. <laughs> Sorry. My wife is. Oh, I've got this picture in my head. My wife is eight months pregnant and she's big at the moment. Like she's ready to pop at any time. And you describing that. Is just give me a theory. How do I make this our fourth child, and how do I make uh, labour as calm and as quick as possible for her, and um, so it's over and done with in a jiffy, and you sh- she can just get on with it, and we've got the baby here, and it's, everything's okay. And I'm now predicting that the best way for that is to get a flight to Japan, um, go on, get on uh, the bullet train. go on the bullet train, and have her sit at the front. Uh, to begin with, when she's ready to go, and I stand at the end of the carriage, and she stands at the front of the carriage, and we get the train to like go from zero. How fast does the train go? It goes real fast, and it like makes it's very fast. Very fast. Yeah. Um, like Three hundred miles an hour. Oh, yeah. So we get it to go, and then I just <laughs> and I catch the baby. I'm trying to work out whether she's going to go for that or not. Whether that's going to be the best one. Mm, I, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make a prediction, which is what I don't do. I think she won't. <laughs> Mark, you have been absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you so much for coming on and blowing my mind. And what's pleased me the most is that you've blown Tom's. And that pleases me because I know how smug Tom can be towards me particularly. <laughs> and it's nice to hear from you and belittle both of us in our thinking (laughs) no i loved it i Um, loved it and it will really start changing the way i think i'm going to start exploring different ways what was the podcast you said you did uh, it's called john richardson and the future noughts me being a future nought and john being john john richardson and the future noughts that is on my playlist now enjoy legend oi 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 ooh la la Goodness gracious me, Joe, my head is hurting, my brain is hurting in a good way. When I have had a chance to process everything we've heard from Mark, I think I'll be a wiser man. For now, I am in the process of having my mind blown. That last noise that you made, the one that went, "Mm," is just the noise that's going around in my head now, like, Mm, oh god with a couple of oh i need to make some changes in my life i'm not recycling enough i need to think about the earth i need to think about how many kids i'm putting in the planet if we've got to get to if we get to 11 billion me and daisy should really stop um contributing to that getting close to that 11 billion which is really hard for her because i mean she can't keep her hands off me, mate. Look at just <laughs> look at the specimen. I mean, I've still got the scorpion bite on the end of my nose, but she likes that apparently. Okay, Joe. Well, as you reconcile yourself to a future without sex, <laughs> to help protect the future of this planet, I'm going to tell you about another podcast. And that podcast this week, Joe, is Alan Cummings' Shelves. Join actor Alan Cumming as he takes an artifact off his extensive shelves and tells us the story behind it with a little help from some friends who have a connection to the curiosity. He's spoken to Sir Ian McKellen about a dog collar, Cindy Lauper about a pair of leather gloves, and you'll even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about Alan's Spice Girls lunchbox. The stories, Joe, are hilarious. There are so many fantastic guests coming up to help Alan tell the tales of his life, so check it out. Just search for Alan Cummings Shelves on your podcast app. Coming to a podcast app near you of all the jokes you could have done with the surname joe that is 
I think the best. So we shall leave it there. I had loads we'll of others. Each other. I had loads of others, but I just couldn't. <laughs> I, I think it's just stop. See you next week, Joe. Bye. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.